It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve Jesus. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good refuge, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. There they sat before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless this word that we just read, Lord, that we would hear from you. Lord, we need to hear from you and not just from Slim. And so, Lord, would you use this time for us to unpack uh, the riches of your word uh, this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Slim, pastor here at Mosaic. And uh, the title of my sermon this morning is Just Preach the Gospel? Question mark? I'm so much feedback. Is it getting here? No? Internal thing going on? I'll work through it. Okay. Um, as Christians, I want us to explore the relationship uh, between the call to help the needy and the biblical command to evangelize. And so we want to look at this in three sections here. We're going to look at the, the call, the need, I'm sorry, the need, the call, and the power. So the need for mercy ministry, the call to mercy ministry and the power uh, that can come from mercy ministry. And so let's look first at, at, at the need uh, of mercy ministry. And remember, we're in the book of Acts, and as the book of Acts is starting, it is the, the, the beginnings of the church. It is explosive growth, right? The, the church starts with just a couple of guys and a couple of women, and then it goes to 120, and then all of a sudden we're at like 10,000 right now in the book of Acts. It is, it is blossoming. And we're, we're, we're seeing growth, 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 growth. But with that growth comes growing pains. And so some of that is going to be some from the outside. And so you've seen, you know, uh, Peter and John being thrown into jail. But then Luke, the author, is also giving us some growing pains from inside. And so he's giving us Ananias and Sapphira. Right? They, they, they sold their money to be like Barnabas. They want to sell their money, sell their field, and they want to give the money to the church. They want to look generous, but weren't actually generous. And so they, they gave some of their money to the church. And, so, and we see already some of the warts of the early church that Luke is keeping in there for us. And so that same money that was given is being used to take care of widows. But as we just read, there are some widows that are being overlooked. And so... The pains within the church are making it very real that, that growth can be harder than decline. And so the need for mercy, verse 1 tells us that the church is growing, but as it grows, more needs arise. Remember back earlier, remember last week I think it was, we said that there is no need among them. Remember it says that, that, that they had no need among them because everyone was giving away to each other. Well, clearly that's not the case today. We, we see from the very beginning here, the church has division, and, and there it is right in the very beginning. There is a complaint that the Hebrew-speaking Jews are getting preferential treatment with the daily distribution over the Greek-speaking Jews. Why? Why does one group get a seat at the table? 
Why does one group get more bread? Why does one group get more, more of the money from the daily distribution? And it says because the, the only difference we see there is a language barrier. And that language barrier usually comes with a cultural barrier. You know, we just grew up differently. And I know I should take care of them, but let me take care of my people first. And so from the very beginning of the church, we see division. We see splits over ethnic lines. And so it is threatening the unity of the church. And this isn't just an issue here in America. This is an issue from the very beginning of the church. We were born into this. There is division over cultural lines. And so this isn't just something we should talk about on MLK Day. This is something that we should be talking about all the time. It's a huge issue. This is something that we are intentionally as a church pushing against. And so remember, the widows at this time are actually the most, one of the most vulnerable people groups in the society. That the widows are the ones who are the most vulnerable. And, and then we're withholding help from the most vulnerable. Where were they going to get their food? It's a daily distribution, so they're reliant on it. I, they need that food. And so it's a pretty ugly look for the church. Because what they were doing was not an outright hate crime, and so they could have had some plausible deniability. We just didn't have enough food. But we'll call it neglect. It was an outright hatred of the Greek-speaking widows, but it was neglect of them, so that they got out of their homes, they walked to the center where the distribution was supposed to happen, where the food was handed out, and they were overlooked, and then they had to walk back home, hungry. Is that okay? You can say no. Is that okay? No. Are we gonna stand for it? No. Ever, do we stand for that ever? No, no. Is mercy an optional thing? No. no. Mercy is not an optional thing. Let's ask Jesus what he thinks about this. There's a couple times in the Bible where people come to Jesus and they, and they say, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or how can I be saved? And what do you think his answer is? Just believe. Like the cat posters. Right? <laughs> no, he's, he doesn't say that. He, does, he doesn't even say, you just believe in your heart that, that I am Lord and that I have paid for your sins. He doesn't say that, oddly. Because we believe that too. What must I do to be saved? And then he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Interesting. You know the story of the man who's on the Jericho Road, who falls among robbers. He's, he's stripped. He's beaten. He's left naked, left for dead. And three people come by and look at him. Some don't even look at him. And so you have a priest who walks on the other side of the road. The Levite does the same thing. And then you have a Samaritan who actually looks at them and bandages his wounds and picks him up, puts him on his, his donkey, takes him to the inn, pays the innkeeper and says, if there's any more medical expenses, I'll pay for that too. And so how do I become a Christian? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Caring for someone like this is the essence of being a Christian. There's another time someone asks him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Mark 10, it says, Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Jesus. <laughs> These are hard questions that we're asking of Jesus, and these are hard answers he's giving back to us. And I'm convinced that there are some today that would say Jesus is not gospel-centered. 
right? That, that I don't get us wrong, this is a core value of our church, that we are gospel-centered, we are about what Christ has done for us at the cross and what he continues to do for us. But I think some have made, they've shifted from being gospel-centered to being gospel-only, and so that they've reduced the gospel to only and narrowly only to justification by faith alone. When there are a whole host of other things that Jesus says to talk about. And we forget that the gospel pushes us outward. That to, to, it pushes us to be compassionate to people. It pushes us out of our apathy. And so mercy is not this optional thing or an addition to being a Christian. Rather, it's a life of poured out deeds in mercy is an inevitable sign of true faith. Amen? Talk to myself today. Okay. Uh, so we've seen the, the need for mercy. We've seen, now we're going to look at the call to all for mercy. So now you can read this passage, and you can solidify yourself in the, in the just preach the gospel only camp. Because look at their response in verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Whew. Kind of... Uh, Insulting. That word for deacon, the word for deacon that we have in the church today actually comes from a, a verb that's in this passage. It's to wait on tables. That's what deaconing is, is to wait on tables. Uh, but at first glance, this feels like that shot towards their ministry as if it's something lower and something far less essential than the preaching ministry. Don't bother me with this. Be gone, peons, deacons. Please don't say that ever to a deacon. But, it, but, but if this was all the disciples said, then, then I think they would have a point. If, if it, all they said was, it's not right for us to wait on tables, go away, then yes, we'd have a very different world than we do today. Let's commend them. Just me. Let's commend them that this isn't what they did. Thankfully, they didn't just say, you're, you're overreacting, widows. You're being too emotional. Mm. <laughs> Don't say that. Thankfully, they didn't question the complainers and say like, well, well, how much do you really need it? Thankfully, I didn't say that. Thankfully, I didn't say, do you know who I am? I'm Peter. How dare you come and, and complain against me that I'm having some sort of racist application to the gospel here that I'm, I'm withholding it from you. How dare you? And become defensive. Thankfully, they didn't do that. Thankfully, they didn't divide the church between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews and say, you know what? Why is it better for them just to have their church and us our church? Praise the Lord they didn't do that. Thankfully, as a Presbyterian, they didn't appoint a committee to study the issue. And then in 15 years, we decide we will still talk about that issue. Important. They knew that it was essential, and so what they did was, verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And so what we see here today is what many in the church see as, as the beginning and the first call of the deacons in the church. And so uh, the church commissions them out, verse 5, that what they said, they pleased the whole gathering, they chose Stephen, who we'll hear about next week, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and the proselyte of Antioch. 
And I want to ask you, do you notice anything about the names there written? Now, you may not know anything about ancient times, but do any of those names sound Hebrew to you? What is just truly fascinating is that in the earliest church, they knew that for the minority group to truly be heard and to be respected and seen, they needed that minority, minority group in leadership. They needed them to have a seat at the table. Look at that. All seven are Greek-speaking Jews. Is that by accident? I mean, think about that. In a church full of Hebrew-speaking believers and Greek-speaking believers, they elect seven, a seven-person deacon board with only Greek-speaking Jews on it. I mean, that's powerful. Now, we here at Mosaic, we don't actually yet have a deacon board. We're so new. But you can bet we're taking notes. Right now, we have one elder. That's me. And we have some elders from abroad that oversee us. And we are training some new, some new elders. Uh, and hopefully, we'll, we'll have our own elder board and our own deacon board and all that. Uh, but right now, this is what we are. But an elder is, is their primary ministry is one of shepherding one of shepherding the flock in a ministry of the word, while deacons' primary ministry is one of mercy. And I think the funny thing about deacons is you can't just produce deacons. You can't just say, let's have a class and let's make you compassionate. Like, you don't, you don't create deacons. You just find them. <laughs> you just find people already serving, already deaconing, and already doing menial tasks, thankless tasks, that some of you are already doing here today. And so we may not have any formal deacons at this church, but this church is full of deacons and deaconesses. I've seen it every single Sunday. People sacrificing their morning that they could have slept in this morning to get up early, to set this room up, to make delicious treats and coffee for us, to work with kids, to practice the songs, to count the money. The, so many things. To serve on the slides. Thank you, TJ. You've done a fantastic job. <laughs> Sorry. You told me not to say anything. So I did. But this is... We see you. Sometimes deacon work feels like thankless work that many no one saw. But we see you mopping up afterwards. Right? Like... A deacon doesn't have to be told to do something. They just naturally do it before anyone asks. That's, that's the spirit of a deacon. And it's a beautiful thing. And I love, I love, 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 love our deacons. The deacons at heart. And so this is a call for everyone to be deacons. To, 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 be, to be not just having the apostles hoard this ministry. And say, no, 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 we, we got it. You guys, you have all eyes on me. We're the professionals doing all the professional ministry. Get on the sideline. No, he's actually saying, no, we need seven people to take, take this job over. Let's do it. Let's appoint them. And so it's not as if there's this, this ministry of word camp and this ministry of, of, of mercy camp. These are two wings of the plane. Right? If you take one wing off of this plane, that plane is going down. And so it's not as if, if we, we, we have people who are deacons and they can't ever talk about the Bible. Stephen is the first deacon. He's going to preach a great sermon next week. Right? Jesus, 
probably the biggest example we can use. The greatest prophet, the person who is the gospel, who is the ministry of the word, right before he dies, is seen bending down and scrubbing his disciples' dirty feet. And so we can't make a division between these two and say, no, that, that, that's, that's not work for me. That, 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 that's, that's menial, dirty work that is not as important as the ministry of the Word. The ministry of the Word is important, and we need it. It's, it's one of the wings, but we also need deacons and ministries of mercy. And so I, I, just, I just can't imagine, thinking about this this way, I can't imagine telling someone about Jesus, and they are so hungry, and I'm just like, no, I can't give you a peanut butter sandwich. I mean, I can't imagine saying, no, I just, I just preach the gospel. We care about people's immediate needs and eternal needs. And so, no, don't just preach the gospel. Give them a sandwich. Don't just preach the gospel. Fight injustice and preach the gospel. Right? This is a call for a, a holistic view of this. And so Stephen, commissioned as a deacon, is the one who's, who's going to push out that, that gospel with word and deed ministry next week. Jesus is doing the word and deed, deed ministry the following week. And so Acts 6 is it, showing us the essential nature of both ministries. It's the ministry of word and the ministry of mercy. We need both. And so it's a call for all of us to be on board with that. And so we've looked at the need, looked at the call, and now we're looking at the power. The power of seeing mercy at work. So after empowering this minority group of leaders to spearhead the mercy ministry, what happens? Verse 7. And the word of God continues to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests become obedient to faith. And so the, the, the funny thing that happens is the priests actually get converted. So when, when the deacons are elected to this, and people are serving, serving needs that are real needs, the priests who are supposed to be the ones caring for widows and the poor are the ones that actually come to faith. Pastors are getting converted. Isn't that great? We need more pastors converted. <laughs> because what they were neglecting, they're seeing these people do it. They're seeing them do the menial, thankless task, and they're going, wow, they actually believe this? They actually believe this stuff? There might be something to this Christianity. So this mercy that we do is an apologetic this mercy is, has impact. It melts hearts. Mercy actually removes objections. It forces respect even from those most hostile to the gospel. Our good deeds glorify God in the eyes of the world. And there might be some of you here today that are doing that right now. That you may not think anyone's seeing you do it, but they see you do it. It may be a very hard situation. And you think, can I keep doing this? Is it worth it? The outside world sees you doing it. And they go, they really believe this. They actually believe this. Eric Mason says that we should be so radical in our core for one another and for our people in general that the world has to stop and take notice. That, that the world has to stop and take notice and say, what is going on there? So this is the power that mercy has. It, it forces the world to stop. The Roman Emperor Julian actually did this. He despised the Christian faith. But he, he, would, he would admit that the Christians were the ones who were constantly gaining new converts because believers were attracted to their generosity to the poor. So the people were watching and saying, they're so generous with the poor. And he
And he said, you know what? They're, they're not even only generous with their poor. They're generous to our poor. They're taking care of our poor as well. And that's why Christianity is exploding. And he was getting angry about it. He says those, those where is it? The impious Galileans or Christians provide not only for their poor, but ours as well. And so Christianity is just exploding. And so don't we see what power we actually have here? The power that we actually have here. We, we might be known as a church that's about social justice and about caring for the poor, but we should be famous for it. We should be famous for it. When people see you deaconing out there, out in the real world, out in the community, and they say, they actually believe this stuff? There's something different about them? The world is watching. And so the gospel actually produces a heart for mercy. But when people watch mercy, it produces a heart for the gospel. Say it another way. Loving God produces a heart to love others. But as we love others, people see that, and it makes them want to love God too. And they are so interconnected. But the divided church is killing our credibility. It is killing our credibility with the world. When we say that we love all people, when it's clearly just the Hebrew-speaking Jews that you love. When it, you, fast forward today. When you say you are welcoming of all different types of people, but it's clear by our staffs that we prefer one reality. But if we take a lesson from Acts 6 and not segregate anymore, but unite and push into a multicultural church, a church that affirms and celebrates the beauty of God's multi-shaded creation. Oh, the world will watch and they will praise their heaven, their, their father in heaven for it, right? And so our neglect of, of basic humanity is killing our credibility. Our neglect of basic humanity is killing our, our credibility with the world, and they now neglect the church because we've neglected them. What is neglect? One thing they, 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 they taught us in foster care training is that when we receive a child who's been in an abusive environment, there, there are the long-lasting effects. And so, for example, a child who may not have access to a lot of food. They come into your home, you can bet they're going to be storing food under their pillow at night. And you wonder why. You go, they're not sure where that next meal might be coming from. And so they hoard. But the heartbreaking thing they tell you about it, they say that the difference between abuse and neglect is with abuse, you're telling a child, I don't like you. You infuriate me. But with neglect, you're telling a child, you don't exist. You're nothing to me. And the effects of neglect on a child long term. Hmm. We have to fight against that and instill dignity back into their thinking that you matter, that you matter to God and you matter to me. God has created you 
with the image of God, which is the Imago Dei, which is a word I want us to just know off the tip of our tongues all the time. The Imago Dei is the image of God, the Imago Dei all day. All day, the Imago Dei. All day we teach you are loved and you are valued and you are precious in my sight. That's why we're not colorblind as a church. Because God sees you. He sees you in your beauty and all of your colors. He sees when groups of people are neglected. So any type of blindness is never good. Usually it's morally culpable blindness. Blindness that's advantageous to be blind. Blindness is what has caused the problem in this church. And they were blind to the Greek-speaking widows. And that communicated, I don't see you. You don't exist. But Jesus, the true deacon, says, I see you. I see you. Whatever you've been through, I see you. Just like the Good Samaritan, I see you. I see you're hurting, and I will bandage it. And I will take care of you. I'll bring you to the end. And I'll pay for all of your medical needs. I see you. I see that you've been neglected. I see your history. I see your past. I see it all. I see your pain. I see your scars. I see it, and I see you in compassion. And it's almost too much to see, but I still look, and I look at it. But Jesus also saw my pain. He saw my hurts, but he also saw how judgmental I am. He even looked at how rebellious I am. He even looked at how weak I am in the faith. And he says, I'm not going to look away. God saw the deepest, darkest sins and said, I can work with that. Because I died for that. Why? Because I died for that. Christ died for that. Whatever it is for you. The thing that you think, there's no way I want him to know. I don't want, I'm going to hide it. I don't want anyone to know about that. Christ says, I died for that. I didn't die for sin in general. I died for these sins in particular. And so, yes, he died for that. Did you know that? And by that compassion, he pushes us out of ourselves to see others, to slow down, to look, and to see others. And so I ask you today, are you too busy to see the needs around you? If I'm too busy that I neglect my wife, then I'm too busy. If I'm too busy that I neglect my family, then I'm too busy. If I'm too busy that I neglect the needs of my community, I'm just too busy. I'm running 80 miles an hour, and I'm not stopping to see what's going on all around me. I see you is the call from Act 6. To slow down and see the felt needs of our community and to not look away. And so who's being neglected around us? What are the felt needs of our community? Our God has shown us the need for the mercy, the call to all of us to answer it. And the indescribable power it could have of one little act of mercy that could change the way people see himself. And so his act of mercy to you, may that be the power that actually changes you right here and right now. Let me pray.